This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Vivian Hagde, Director at Hilti Tech Office. In this episode, we'll talk about corporate venture capital again. How is it different from a regular venture capital? Who should consider CVC, which is, by the way, the abbreviation for corporate venture capital? And who should stick to just regular VC? So, Vivian, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Hilti Tech Office. Uh, thank you, Constantine. I'm happy to be here. Uh, maybe I start with Hilti itself. i uh, give you a little bit of background of what we do, and then I get into myself. Hilti is a construction tools and services company. We were founded in 1941 in Europe, so it's an old company predominantly with European roots, but now we are in present in 120 countries. We're about $6 billion, 30,000 people. And the two things that have held us in good shape over the years. And the two things that we are predominantly known for is innovative products and being direct to customer. So we are fully integrated right from R&D, manufacturing, distribution services, and so on and so forth. And we've always done a lot of work internally in terms of R&D. We spend $350, $400 million on it every year. But as time has progressed, we're moving to new areas like robotics, like AR, VR, IoT, and so on. And we felt the need to engage with the startup ecosystem much more deeply. And that's when we set up the Hilti Tech office. So me and my colleagues set this office up about two years back. And what we try to do is we are the eyes and ears of the organization in terms of looking at new trends, either as opportunities or threats. We also look at investments, acquisitions, potential partnerships. We also are managing external partnerships. We have a couple of fund investments. We have some other partnerships with VCs, and we also manage some of the large customer relationships. So that's what our office does, right? Personally, I've been with Hilti for about seven years now. I started in Europe, in Liechtenstein. It's a tiny little country next to Switzerland, Austria. Uh, I spent a couple of years working on various corporate strategy projects, including a software strategy, a North America strategy, and so on. Moved here with the sales team for a couple of years before setting this office up. And prior to Hilti, I was with McKinsey for about six and a half years, worked in the various geographies. I spent a year in Africa, a year in Jakarta, Singapore, US, uh, before moving back to India. So led a little bit of a nomadic life. Uh, and prior to McKinsey, I dabbled in investment banking for a short while. I was in London, the Dutch bank. I'm a mechanical engineer by education, but also did my MBA in finance and economics. So that's a very quick overview of what I do and what Hilti Tech Office does. That's a pretty thorough overview, though. Thanks for that. So first, let's start by the very basic. How does corporate venture capital work? Who basically provides you with money and what are your major metrics there at the Hilti Office? So corporate venture capital, the way we work is we work off the balance sheet, which typically means we don't have a fund. But whenever we have investments, uh, we get that off the company balance sheet. But corporate venture capital can also have a separate fund. So for example, if you look at Google Ventures, they have a separate fund. But a lot of other corporates typically work off the balance sheet. And for us, the process is about ensuring that there's a strategic fit, right? It's not purely for financial gains. It's to ensure that we are moving the objectives of the company forward. And therefore, we have restrictions on which areas we can invest in and which areas we cannot. 
for example, robotics is interesting for us. But if we said health sciences, uh, regardless of how attractive the opportunity is, I wouldn't invest there, right? And typically the process also starts from us identifying the opportunity, making the business case, uh, then also bringing along the business owners so that any decisions that we make has the business owner's input as well. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. <clears throat> Next question is, how do you source your deals? So where do you find those startups that fit your very specific criteria? So actually it's a very diverse set of sources that we look at, and it also changes with the period of time. When we are very early, we are a little bit reliant on some of the VCs. So we have a couple of fund investments, we get access to deal flow from them. So we are quite reliant on what they gave us. But as time is broken, sources that are relevant to us. So apart from the two funds we've invested in, we have a network of 35, 40 VCs that we collaborate with, where they come to us for advice on deals, uh, for advice on the sector, and they share with us what they think is relevant to us as well. We also work with the universities. Uh, some of the early startups come out of universities, so we track universities. We work with incubators. If you look at Plug and Play, you look at Berkeley Skydeck, you look at uh, Stanford incubators, Across the, across the country, there are multiple incubators that we work with as well. And then we attend a lot of conferences, right? We attend a lot of conferences, we meet startups there, uh, meet pitches, we attend demo days. We also have a website where some startups come and apply directly. And this year, we're also starting a construction day startup event uh, where startups can apply to participate in that. And eventually in December, there's a competition where we'll be judging the top 10 uh, startups. So, it's it's a mix of a lot of things, but networking is a critical part in all of them. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So I'm curious right now, uh, how what's the percentage like? So I know from my personal experience that usually VCs and even corporate venture capitals, they usually invest in people they know for some time, usually it's like between six months and like many, many years. Does it work the same way for you guys? So what's the percentage like? How much do you invest in people you know, and how much do you invest in people that come from conferences or from your website? So I would say it's almost always people I know, right? But mm -hmm. people I know could also mean that I first came into touch with them through conferences or websites. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes to me and I talk to them, I have a good conversation, it's unlikely we write a check in the next three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. But it's very likely we, if the product is interesting, that we stay in touch over the next three, six, 12 months, and we develop a deeper relationship and eventually we end up investing. Uh, so it, sources could be, any, the initial con first contact could be anywhere, but it takes a period of time before we say, okay, this makes sense. Right, right, it does take time, you're right on that. And my next question was about uh, R&D. So you mentioned that you spent uh, I forgot the exact number. Was it like 300 something million yeah. dollars? Yeah, 350, 400 million dollars. What does it mean that you spend 354 million dollars on R&D? So it means a few things. So we have a lot of product lines, right? If you look at mm -hmm. stock keeping units, we have probably 10,000 of them. So R&D would mean incremental innovation on bringing the new iteration of the product. We have like 60, 70 product launches every year. So bringing oh, these goodness. new products. R&D also means working on some frontier technology. For example, material science is very important. So finding materials which are extremely hard, but also 
not brittle, is something we could be working on. We could be working on sensor technology on uh, embedding sensor into some of our products. That's also part of R&D. So there are various frontiers to this. Some of them is incremental product innovation, but some of them is truly breakthrough technology that we either develop in-house or work with universities to develop. Mm -hmm. Got it, understood. My next question was about your level of investment. So it's clear that you invest in specific sectors. You cannot invest in some specific sectors as well. So you have specific investment criteria, but do you have a specific level at which you invest in? So do you generally invest at Series A, Series B, or pre-seed or even seeds? So in that sense, we are completely flexible, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't even need to invest. As long as it's moving us forward strategically, we could be a customer. Uh, for that startup. We could be a customer, we could white label the product, we could get into technology product uh, partnerships, we could make small seed investments or pre-seed investments of a few hundred thousand. We could make series, e, a series A investment, which we've done, we've made Series B investment as well. And we've also done acquisitions. So for us, we have complete flexibility in how we do it. It's just a matter of how well it fits strategically with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's really interesting. And how exactly does the acquisition part work? So I know that generally before making an acquisition, a corporate venture capital usually invests in the company to see how the company operates, what the team is like, and you know, just try to work with them. Does it work the same way with you or can you just do an acquisition without prior investments? Uh, so it does. So of the last two acquisitions that we made, we actually did not have any prior investments in them. It was a direct investment. Uh, in terms of acquisition, but also those two were very early stage startups. They were, those were not mature startups. So for us, acquisition depends on what are we looking to get from them. It is IP that we're getting from them. Is it entry into a new market space that we're getting from them? Is it market reach we're getting from them? It just depends on what we are looking from the acquisition. And then we look at the strategic fit into what we're doing. And mm -hmm. yes, a lot of corporate venture arms try to invest to understand the startup before they acquire. And that is predominantly used by corporate venture arms, which have a lot of capital on the books. Oh yeah. So that approach is well established, but also for earlier stage startups, I think direct investment to acquire is also prevalent. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And you mentioned that those couple of startups that you acquired without making prior investment in them, they were early stage startups. How early were they on? So were they like pre-seed, were they seed stage? So one was at seed stage, uh -huh. one was pre-seed. Nice. So how do you find those companies? Did you actually uh, look out for them on Crunchbase or did you see them on some conference? How do you find them if they're so, so early on? So typically pre-seed you don't find on Crunchbase uh, unless <laughs> you're doing a targeted look. This is yeah. based on networks. This is based on knowing what's happening in the ecosystem. Uh, we get feedback from customers. We get feedback from other venture firms. And uh, it's tips, uh, typically network-driven. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. That's really interesting. Um, have you ever had ever happened to you that you see something on like TechCrunch or some other technical publication where you're like, oh, that's an interesting startup. I should reach out to them. Did that ever happen to you? or? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's one startup that I saw a TechCrunch article about a year back, 
then I was like, this is interesting. This is one mm -hmm. of the use cases we're looking at. I reached out to them on LinkedIn. I started a collaboration. Uh, we have an active pilot running with them right now. And that could potentially turn into an investment as well. That's awesome. That's great to hear because uh, that's one of the questions that I get pretty frequently. And my answer is always, you know, if you can get yourself on the TechCrunch, probably you will get some sort of a deal from that. So try your best. But my next question was about current investing. So right now it's the crisis. Well, no, it's pretty tough. Uh, no one really knows what's going to happen in a month. You know, so are you investing right now or are you waiting for the dust to settle? How does it work? We are investing right now. Um, I'm actually in the middle of a couple of projects where if everything goes well, they could turn into investments. So we are, for the right opportunity, still investing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Got it. So another thing that I want to discuss in terms of reaching out to investors and, you know, growing your network is what sort of events should people attend? So I have even a specific uh, section in my website, which is called Deep Tech. And mm -hmm. people in Deep Tech usually struggle in terms of, you know, finding good connections because there are not that many conferences focusing on their specific field because they're so narrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what's your advice to those people? What's your advice to founders who are trying to find these good conferences or these good points of contact with investors? Where should they look? So it depends on your end market. I'll give you my example on what mm -hmm. conferences I attend. A company works in construction, right? So typically any good construction tech conference, I would mm -hmm. try to attend. So there are a few like Built Worlds, uh, there's the World of Concrete, which I go to sometimes, there's Autodesk University and a few others that we try to track, but only the top few ones because there tend to be a lot of these. And then um, I also look at to uh, topical issues, right? For example, robotics is interesting. So Silicon Valley Robotics is a good organization up here in the North Bay. I'm a member mm -hmm. there as well. So they have bots and beers, which happens every two weeks. So that gives you some exposure. TechCrunch Robotics event in Berkeley was a good event to be a part of, right? And so identify whether you're trying to target one sector or whether you're trying to target one topic. So if you think of yourself as a robotics startup, then you present in more of the robotics conferences and then you might get traction. And it's also important to understand what stage you are in. If you're too early and you are at these conferences, when customers come to you, you don't have a product to show to them. So you don't really get the traction. You should attend the conferences when you're able to digest the next steps. Otherwise, you don't get the full benefits of being at the conference. So there's a timing mm -hmm. aspect as well, apart from just identifying the right conferences. Right, right. That's that's a good point. And here we're switching on to the topic of actually writing check, investing, and you know, due diligence basically. So I know that VCs, when they look at the pitch deck, they want to see uh, how the company is going to grow, how are they going to monetize, what's the team like, how is it different since uh, corporate venture capitals usually look for strategic investments, what do you usually look at on the pitch deck? So the first thing I would look at the pitch deck is, why is it relevant to me, right? Mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the strategic fit? And even if it's a super attractive financial proposition, if there is no strategic linkage to us, then I will not even ask for a second meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to invest there if it's not strategic relevance. So that is the first thing that I would look for. The second thing I want to look for is how do you think of collaborating, right? 
if I write a check, it can't just be a check. What else is there a technology agreement that we'll put in place? Are we getting an insight into some of the IP that we are testing right now, producing right now? Or is there a market reach collaboration opportunity that comes with that? So corporates typically also want to help the startup. So there are a lot of avenues for us to bring help, but we also want to understand why exactly we are doing this. Mm -hmm. Understood. So next that we discussed a little bit on the pitch deck, I wanted to touch on to the real means. So what are the major mistakes that you see founders do when they first meet you or when they try to present you their company? So for example, on the conference, when the founder just runs into you and he or she realizes that you know you are the person who might write them a check, what's the major mistake that they usually make? So I can think of two or three there, right? The first is because startups meet so many VCs and strategics and so on, you have a standard pitch deck that you want to share with them or a standard pitch that you want to check with them. Uh, what's important to me is it's customized. I want to be presented something that resonates with me. So at least understanding what my priorities are is important in that conversation so that you can customize your pitch uh, to the person you're talking to. That is something that startup founders sometimes miss, right? Mm -hmm. Second is, and this is more about a pitch deck than a conversation, it's about pitching at the right level. When, for example, when you talk about TAM, uh, you could talk about, okay, it's a 6 billion market, it's an 8 billion market and we'll get 200 million out of it. But you don't talk about the assumptions, you don't talk about any details, and it's just an assumption. That's that's what right. it is. It, it has no backing to it. On the other hand, there's some others who go into the de detailed business modeling and try to talk about, okay, five years down the line, I'll grow by X percent. <laughs> so presenting at the right level is important. You can't be too high level or too detailed because you'll lose right. the audience in either ways. Right, And finally, the third thing is showcasing the th uh, strength of the team. Let's see, founders have a diverse skill sets, but typically you tend to talk about the person who's in the room. You don't talk as much about the people who are outside the room who are an equally important part, part of the discussion or the equally important component of making a decision to invest in that company. So I think that's a part that sometimes gets missed as well. Nice, great. And we're coming up to probably the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. What's that one thing that you would recommend people do as soon as the episode is over? Uh, so there's one theme around which I would uh, try to talk about. It's customers, right? The call to mm -hmm. action would vary slightly depending on what stage of startup you are. If you are in very early stage startup when you're still building the product, I would say get customer feedback as soon as possible. Talk to them now, talk to them to find out how the pandemic has impacted your market or impacted the thought process on your product. So get that feedback today and refine that. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're a later stage startup, then you already probably have some customers. So I would say go back to your biggest customers today. You don't know how they're feeling about tomorrow. So find out how they, even if you have locked in contracts for the next year, just go back to them, find out what are their plans, how has the pandemic moved uh, their plans for the next year, so that you don't have any surprises. Even if there's bad news, you get that bad news earlier so that you have plans <laughs> right. to mitigate it. 
and rather than getting it as a complete surprise and then you can't really do much about it mm -hmm. so that's that's great. what i would say great advice yeah customers is the key and here i actually came up with a follow-up question which is uh the thing that you mentioned earlier which is uh assumption so you said that you, know, you can just come up with random valuations and say that we're going to acquire 200 million market you need to validate that assumption and you usually validate that through revenue right and i was wondering what do you think is the significant amount of revenue to prove that assumption so for example if I'm claiming that I will capture, uh, I don't know, the market of like 10% of the market of people who like to play board games, what's the significant amount of sales that I need to make that you would be, you know, you're like, okay, yeah, that validates the assumption. So for me, that depends by stage, right? For example, if you're pre-seed or seed, you hardly have enough product out there to validate this. At that mm -hmm. point, you might... At seed stage, it might even be three pilot customers who are paying revenue to you, which might help validate that, okay, you are getting some initial traction and the decision at the seed level is made much more on the team and, and the concept rather That's than true. actual market validation. But if you are moving to series A, then I would say what a lot of investors start to think about is a million plus in recurring revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that typically is a starting point and some of them want more, some of them want less, but that's the starting point, I would say. And also not all revenues are treated equally, right? So recurring is better than one time. Oh. And even recurring, your type of customers matter. And that again is dependent on the solution that you're doing. And that's great specific advice. I love it. And on this you know, specific advice point, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks a lot, Vivian, for coming up and for sharing your experience in corporate venture capital. It was a really interesting episode. Thanks for that. Uh, you're welcome, Constantine. Good to be here and have a nice day. You too.